Welcome back to the Sip and Feast podcast. Today we're going to talk about food myths. Can't really say that word. You're going to be busting some culinary and food myths. <laughs> Doesn't roll off the tongue right, myths. Um, yeah, so we're going to do a bunch. This is all going to be strictly culinary food myths. Am I an expert on any of these myths? Am I a scientist? No. So some of these myths might actually, I might actually give you wrong information. And guess what's going to happen if I give you wrong information? What do you think is going to happen, Tara? Well, somebody's going to let you know yeah. that you were wrong. But what's going to happen to me? Um, you'll be canceled. No, nothing's going to happen. So, and I'm sure even when I give some factual stuff that's like 100% right, there'll be plenty of people that will disagree with it too. Mm -hmm. So that's just how the internet is, right? Yeah, There's nothing wrong, Nothing wrong with that. It's hard to find factual information on the internet these days. It's littered with fake and false information and a lot of tropes. That's the best way to think about it. Stuff that gets repeated. It becomes just matter of fact. That's the truth about a thing. And if it's on page one and there's nothing else there but that trope, then everybody believes it. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to go to page two of the internet. Page not. two is where if you have a blog, if you have a website or anything, that's where your content goes to die. Nobody will see it. So you must be on page one, just how it is. And here we go. We're going to get in right into the list. We're not going to diddle-dally any longer. Okay. I think the one that we should talk about first is something that came up when you had filmed, I think it was the Pasta a la Norma video where you talked about eggplants right? Eggplant is one of the main components of pasta a la norma. So there were a lot of comments on YouTube about whether or not you chose a, a male or a female eggplant. And I know you wanted to dispel that myth. So you pinned a comment on YouTube and stated your opinion, which I believe your opinion is fact. Okay. So I did. And just to let you know straight away, there are no such thing as male and female eggplants. So the myth is that the eggplants, if you look at the bottom of the eggplant, if there's a round kind of little marking on it, it's a male. And if it's a line, it means it's a female. And I actually have two perfect specimens that unfortunately are not right here in front of me, but they're downstairs because I'm going to make baba ganoush today. Mm -hmm. That's right. I actually picked three eggplants and I have two male and one female. And, you know, for the probably 900th time in my life, I'm going to cut an eggplant open and I'm probably going to have inconclusive results mm -hmm. based on this myth. Yeah. So the myth says that if, the, if you have a female eggplant, there will be a lot of seeds in it. And if you have a male eggplant, there will be less seeds. Is that, is that how it goes? Yes. Okay. Which See, actually, like, I would think it was the other way around. I've, I've like just- Like the male should have more seed, <laughs> but- <laughs> I've stopped, li I, I mean, I, I remember like, it was probably some famous chef on TV who was saying it like 20 years ago and I, it never worked out for me. I would like, I tell my mom, I'd be like, you gotta get, you can't, like, we gotta go buy eggplant and- um, what is it? The male again is the good one. I think so. Yeah. So I'm like, we got to get a bunch of males and I basically have like erased it from my, my thoughts because it just doesn't work. But anyway, let's just read off to you some, you know, a piece of science. This is a horticulture site, but plants don't always follow human norms of separate male and female individuals. Most vegetable plants have both male, which is a pollen, pollen producing part and female, uh, the ovary parts within the same flower on the plant. Okay, eggplant is one of them. Peppers are too, 
most of the vegetables that you're going to grow in your garden are. So essentially, and I wrote just in the pinned comment, they're hermaphrodites. So listen, if you guys think that I'm wrong here and you know you have conclusive evidence to prove it, leave it in the comments. But if you Google this and you go to any university agriculture site or extension, or you can just call up your local plant expert in, in the county you live in, they will tell you the exact same thing I'm telling you right now. Tara, let's move on to myth number two. Okay, so myth number two is regarding shrimp. So if you cook your shrimp and they form a C, it means that they're properly cooked. If you cook the shrimp and it forms an O, you've overcooked it and it's going to be terrible and rubbery and inedible. So O means Oh, no. <laughs> that's right. That's that's what it means. Oh, no. Um, so listen, if you do cook a shrimp really with a ton of heat, it will turn into an O. But often shrimp that you buy in the store, especially, and the shrimp I'm talking about in the store is the heads are removed, the in the poop track is removed. <laughs> What's the, say that scientifically. I think it's called the, the intestinal intesti track. In, the intestinal track. Oh, this is what you get on the, oh, here. <laughs> Poop so track. The, the intestinal track is removed and the shrimp will be, like you, we buy shrimp all the time. You buy them from Whole Foods. Typically you'll buy the um, U25 mm -hmm. that are cleaned and deveined. That's right. What do they look like when you buy them before there's any heat on them? Well, some of them are already kind of in that. Oh, that o shape, state, right? That O yeah. shape. Yeah. Yeah. They're like in the C slash O state already. Yeah. And that has to do with like when you make a cut, an incision. Right. So when they're cutting them, you know, if you go online, they'll say like only cut a quarter inch down in the shrimp and then, you know, cook them gently or, or whatnot to keep them straight. Now, a lot of times if you want to keep them dead straight, like Japanese restaurants for tempura, they'll put okay. a stick through it. Yeah. So what they'll do is they'll relieve the pressure often on the front and back side of it. So if you look at a shrimp, the top of it is the poop track and the bottom of it is like a blue line, like a blue vein almost. So that's something else. So anyway, you can remove both of them. And basically what you're doing now is you're cutting, you're cutting the proteins on both sides. So if you do a tempura and you want to keep those dead straight shrimp that look great when you get tempura, right? Mm -hmm. Don't you yeah. love that? Put a stick through it, fry it, and then remove the stick, and that'll do it for you. But what I simply showed in the video was, and do you remember what video that was with the shrimp? It might have been the shrimp a la vodka video or the shrimp with um, basil and tomato. It was the basil tomato one. So if you're a fan of this channel, watch the basil tomato shrimp one. I think it's titled Spicy Shrimp pasta, something. spicy shrimp pasta. It's not too far back. It's probably two or three months ago. And I was cooking the shrimp in the pan. There was a complete O already. Most of them were yeah. complete O's. And I they picked, were gray, right? I picked up the shrimp in the spoon and put it to the camera and it was 100, not 100%, but it was 80% not cooked, meaning it just was a tiny bit orange pinkish on the outside, but it was, it was still completely gray for the most part. So I was just trying to dispel the myth immediately. That's right. Take this for what you will. Let's move on to myth number three. That actually makes me think of another myth sort of related to shrimp that wasn't on our list of myths to talk Let's about. Let's do it. You can never have raw shrimp. And speaking of sushi, there is a certain type of shrimp that you can eat raw, yes. which I guess comes with its own disclaimer, like people should not eat undercooked meat or seafood or whatever, but it's the sweet shrimp and you can eat those raw. They are absolutely incredible. Now, there's two different types of sweet shrimp that most sushi places in America will serve. They'll serve the large ones that you can get all year round, and then they'll serve 
the real small ones that, what do they come off the coast of Maine? And those are for only about one month of the year, right? Um, yeah. I'm not sure where they come from, but I know that it's only, it, it is really only for that one month or so that yeah. you can have them. And they're very, very sweet. Delicious. And delicious. One of the most delicious things you'll ever have. And yeah, Tara's right. Those are those are raw shrimp and you know if you go to jet if you go to japan and you eat food they they eat everything raw they even have chicken sashimi which i would never eat mm -hmm. because of i haven't heard uh, of the chicken sashimi i know they have raw you can eat raw lobster there raw lobster, lobster i've seen raw frog they eat like raw frog hearts i i don't know where i saw all this but i did see that the, yeah. the heart of the the heart was still beating yeah so that's not for me but but yeah the tara is right about the the shrimp being raw. Let's move on to uh, myth number three. Myth number three. Some people, I think it's some actually people on YouTube will tell you that you need to salt your pasta water like the sea. And is that accurate to say you should have, your pasta water should have the same salinity as the sea? So this one I'm 100% certain of, and that is 100% wrong. I don't know who started this. Uh, they Surely they weren't actually saying to get it to the salinity level of the sea. The salinity level of the sea, I checked this before we did this, is 3.5 to 5%, depending on the sea, uh, what sea you're talking about, which would equate to an ungodly amount of salt and it would destroy your pasta every single time. Again, we don't want to take my word for it here. So let's just, uh, Serious Eats has an article on this and they tested uh, at a 1% level, I think a 1.25% and a 1.5% level. At that level, their testers, I believe some of them said it was a little too salty for them. So I always, my general rule is two tablespoons of salt. Now I use Morden's kosher salt, which is very close to the salinity level of regular table salt. So that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about diamond kosher salt, but it's basically just to make it simple for yourself, just use two tablespoons of table salt for a gallon of water. Most of the time, you'll probably be boiling your pasta one pound in a little bit less than a gallon of water. And that'll give you about, depending on, and I just eyeball it, you know, I can grab tablespoons fairly easily. That'll give you that one to one and a half percent salinity level, and you will be totally fine. Do you agree with that, Tara? I do. Have and you I, ever oversalted your pasta water? I no, have done it. I have done it a couple times. No, I've undersalted it because I tend to go a little bit lighter when it comes to salt than than you do, and I think most people do. Well, don't be afraid of salt, mm -hmm. but it's it's hard to do the sea. If you get it to the sea level, I mean, you'll be grabbing like a fist of salt. I think intuitively you'll know if you're uh, even like a moderate cook, you'll know there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And you'll definitely know there's something wrong once you taste your pasta. And you'll know something wrong if you use a little bit of that pasta water for any type of dish. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And pasta water is so it's such an important part of many of the dishes that, that we make and the recipes that we have on our website. So you definitely don't want to be over-salting that. Often uh, on recipes, and we just put out another recipe today, and the recipes, we write them so we, – we do this so much where – Every week, it's two recipes that go up on the site, and there's one uh, podcast that we're doing right now. So it's write the recipes, often their pasta. I will always have one to two cups of pasta water as the ingredient. I will always make a note, will most likely not need it all. And I do this simply because if you're making pasta and you have a beautiful pasta done, and today it was chicken cacciatore pasta that I did, I know, which is a no-no for some purists, but anyway, I put it in the I, in the in ingredient list, but you might not even need any of it. 
if your family comes down to the dinner table immediately after you make it. Now, the reality of it of it is life means your son or daughter is probably outside playing basketball. One of them's probably on the phone. One of them's probably making a TikTok and they don't want to be disturbed. You know, it will be 15 minutes before everybody finally gets down to the dinner table. That pasta that you was beautiful 15 minutes earlier will not be so beautiful. So you use your pasta water and you will loosen it up. Now, Tara, how many people asked the question on YouTube or on our site? I thought pasta water is starchy and it's used to thicken. It does both, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's right. A, isn't that an odd thing? That's right. So that's another thing. You can use it to thin out when you need it, when you're in the situation I just described, or you can use it to thicken the sauce. So you say you're making uh, spaghetti nerano, cacio pepe, whatever, mm -hmm. a little bit of pasta water, splash it in there, starchy pasta water, do a flip in the pan, you get a proper emulsion, you know, where the pasta starts slapping the pan and then everything will thicken. That's the Montecatora yes. technique. Is that what that's, am I pronouncing that correctly? I, I know what you're saying and yeah. I hope other people know what you're saying. Tell me if I'm wrong. Sorry if I <laughs> butchered it once again. Moving on to number four. Before we move on to number four, actually this was on our list, but I think it kind of goes, goes nicely with what you were just talking about. You wanted to spend some time talking about Morton's kosher salt versus diamond yeah. kosher salt. So do you want to just talk about that since we were just talking yeah, salt? Yeah, let's talk about that. So if you read articles, and again, this is page one of Google, you'll see you'll see it. Diamond kosher salt became, some famous chef started recommending it. Then all restaurants started using it. And uh, diamond kosher salt is made by Cargill, I believe. And Cargill's this big company that is based in Minnesota, right? Minnesota. Yeah, it's a right. Minnesota company. Minnesota has a lot of these big companies. They have a lot of salt products. They have the salt pellets that people use for their water softeners, but they also have this very flaky kosher salt. So it's, it's supposedly chefs love it and it took, it took over restaurants because it's hard to oversalt and you can get a better feel for how you're salting. The, the best example is, say you have like a bunch of chicken thighs laid out and you're doing a sear and you want to evenly distribute your salt. If you have a very, if you, let's, let's, let's use the most extreme example. You have table salt and you, you pinch that to grab it. It will not come out of your hands, your fingertips properly. And you could potentially really over salt one piece and get no salt on another piece. Now, if you have this like flaky, big, thick, coarse kosher salt, which is what diamond kosher salt is, it's very hard to not distribute that salt properly to all of your chicken. So it really is a good product. Mm -hmm. I use Morden's kosher salt simply, and I've and I've said this before in a number of videos. It's just easier to find here, and we live in New York, so we have access to probably better food and ingredients than most people in America do. It's you know, it's just we're in a suburb right right next to the biggest city in the United States that serves the most food and you know supposedly has the best restaurants. So it's still hard to find diamond kosher salt all the time, right, Tara? I mean, you see it in a couple stores, but not in all the stores. Yeah, most of the time. First of all, a lot of times I have a hard time finding kosher salt, period. But when I do, it's usually Morton's. If you want to just really simplify this, Morton's is roughly three-quarter of the salinity of table salt. Diamond kosher salt is only half. So mm -hmm. you need double the amount of diamond kosher salt, roughly, this is all rough, to equal table salt. Mm -hmm. So it's harder to over salt with the diamond kosher salt. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
I really think we should probably start specifying in our recipes that we're using Morden's kosher salt. I just like Morden's because again, it's easy to get, and I, I'm, you know, I'm fairly, I'm fairly adept at not oversalting my food. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's diamond is much coarser. It's much fancier. Mm-hmm. I do like fancy salt every now and then. Well, if you want really fancy salt, you want that salt that in the Airbnb that we went to. What was the name of that salt that we used? It is called Malden salt. So Malden sea salt. And that's used, a lot of restaurants will use that to to finish a dish. Mm -hmm. Now salt, supposedly, I did a little research for the salt top, this salt segment here. Uh, Salt has a taste. So people think that uh, some salts, like a particular sea salt, is better than other salts. I think there's different minerals in different salts. So like I know Celtic sea salt is supposed to have some type of... I don't know exactly which mineral it is, but it's it's better for certain things as opposed to a Himalayan sea salt. I don't know. I mean, kosher salt is a is koshering salt. It's, it's used for that purpose, and then chefs have taken over it and just use it because it's easy to grab. Mm-hmm. So that was that was like the evolution of that one. As far as like taste in salt, I'm not positive about that, but many uh, companies and chefs have their own flavored salts now. So if you're using rosemary salt, of course it's going to have a different Mm -hmm. taste than regular salt. Right. There's a lot of YouTubers that they push their salts all the time and they have like their name on it and they sell it. We don't sell any merch. We don't do any of that yet. Yet. It's coming soon. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do it. I mean, honestly, and I'm not. I'm not trying to hate on the, the ones that do do it, but it it is. I don't. I don't like the idea of having a product and then telling you in the video, oh, you got to use my product or or the dish won't be good. It makes me feel uncomfortable doing that. Yeah. But we have been talking about developing a knife, so that's something that I think I, I could get behind because let's be honest here, the knife that we end up selling will just be a good manufacturer's knife with our name on it. It's not, we're not going to be, you know, making our own knife from scratch or anything like that. And and nor will anybody that you're buying a knife from. That would cost tens of millions of dollars to do that. Number five. Okay. Fresh tomatoes make better sauce. I love this one. This is the best one. If you made it to this point, well, no, I'm not gonna, this isn't the best one. There's more, there's better stuff to come. Lots more <laughs> stuff to come. Okay. So I went into this in a couple, was it podcast or was it a YouTube video? It was both. What's the bottom line on this? You answer this. So you can definitely make a great sauce with fresh tomatoes, but the caveat there is that the tomatoes really need to be picked from the vine when they are at their peak ripeness, which doesn't usually happen if you're buying tomatoes from a grocery store. They're being picked when they're not ripe, and then they're being let to ripen on a shipping container or truck or or something like that. So it's not always the case that fresh tomatoes are going to give you a superior sauce. You're probably better off using tomatoes that are in a can that were actually picked at peak ripeness. So Tara is completely 100% right. That's why I love her. That's why she's my wife. That's why she's my partner. That's why she's sitting next to me right now. She agrees with everything I say. (laughs) Most tomatoes are indeterminate. That means that they'll grow throughout the whole season. So if you really want to be to get like a perfect tomato sauce and cans, you would want to be out there waiting for each one to get to peak ripeness, to grab it, then to get them all together and make tomatoes. But the problem with like a home gardener is you don't have, you're not planting 80 plum tomato plants. You might have two of those. You might have two uh, beefsteak tomatoes. You might have a couple cherry tomatoes. So 
in order to get enough that are at peak ripeness at the same time, it's fairly difficult. As far as the truck goes, again, Tower is 100% right there. They put them in the truck when they're green because if they put them in when they were at peak ripeness, they would get smushed and smashed uh, on the thousand mile ride or whatever they're taking. But often, yeah, they'll by the time they get off the truck and they get to your supermarket, that's when they are looking very red, but they're not. They're still not too good. So yeah, I would go with a really high quality brand of tomatoes. I'm just gonna rattle off a bunch of them right now. Any of Stanislaus products. Stanislaus is an American company based in California, Stanislaus County. Scofani, that's New Jersey tomatoes, but I believe they're a Connecticut company. Anyway, they're in the Northeast. Those are both excellent. You will make a great sauce with them. Cento, most people know Cento. If you're listening to this, you probably have heard of Cento. Uh, Moody is good. Pastine. Tara, help me out here. What about Nina? That's the giant cans that they sell at Costco. Yes, Nina's I like. Uh, they have great value at Costco. I've always made a great sauce with them. But really the most universal thing, all of these brands I mentioned, they're all really good. I've had a couple bad experiences with canned tomatoes, but those have often been bargain ones or just ones that I wouldn't normally buy. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna say, not gonna talk about bad, you know, bad about a company, but all the ones that I just said right now, you you'll you will be well served with them and it will be very hard for you to match the, the quality of those tomatoes even if you grow them yourself now again if you grow a ton like tara's uh, father remarried and uh angie she's from italy she moved here when she was like what 12 or something uh, yeah i think like 10 or 11 10, 10 yeah. or 11 and her father uh you know who passed a few years ago he he did a huge garden every year and he would can hundreds of the tomatoes. So probably when he was at like peak doing this, when he was probably in his 50s or whatever, his 40s, he, Angie said he had like the whole yard was a garden. So they were- He also made his own wine. Yeah, he made his own wine. Yeah, I mean, this is just typical, but he would have, you know, he would have probably 50 plum tomato plants. So then he was able to do it. He had like his own little tomato growing operation. Mm -hmm. So that works if you do that. Or I guess if you have, if you're friends with like, a farmer, like a local farmer. This is a long topic. I think you're better off with canned tomatoes. So that is busting that food myth. Tower, we're gonna go to uh, myth number six right now. The next myth is that aluminum foil was designed to have one nonstick side and one side that better traps the heat. Is that right? Is that the myth? It supposedly is about reflecting the heat. It reflects reflecting better. Reflecting the heat, sorry. Yeah, 100% myth, uh, not true and you can find out uh, by Googling this one, The one one of the quotes is from the actual Reynolds rap CEO, or no, chief scientist, he's saying about the manufacturing process. And no matter who makes this aluminum foil, which uh, I think most of it comes from Alcoa, which is like the big aluminum producer in America, it's done in a two-step, a multi-step process, but they essentially are putting two sheets together and when that are ultra thin, and when they're rolled, you're ended up one roller gives it a shiny side, one roller gives it a less shiny side. Where I saw this uh, like being displayed in a funny way was some cook did something to Gordon Ramsay, like he did like a TikTok and he said, Gordon, you can't do this as good as me. And he like made a dish and then, it was like Gordon, it was on Gordon Ramsay's channel where he was making fun of cooks. Mm-hmm. So he's like, he's like, look at this guy. He's a donut. He kept, that was the, that was the derogatory, derogatory term that he uses all the time too. Mm-hmm. So he was calling the guy a donut because he was, had the uh, foil according to Gordon Ramsay uh, the wrong way. But Gordon, I'm sorry to break it to you. 
it's completely wrong. I just I wonder how much other stuff, uh, and it's it's not just endemic to Gordon Ramsay. I wonder how many other things that like the most famous chefs in the world are just saying that are 100% wrong. The danger about that is when Gordon Ramsay says something or other people who have positions like that, people tend to believe it and it becomes accepted truth. Is it possible that the aluminum that Gordon Ramsay uses in England is different than the, actually, with the way Gordon would say, it would be aluminum. Yeah, aluminum, yep. But that's besides the point. Would that be different than Alcoa foil produced here in the US? I think Alcoa makes all the foil in the world. I mean, China probably has their own big equivalent company doing it, but I don't know uh, 100% about it, but I think it's all made the same way. Where I have heard another myth about it, and I don't know if it's a myth, supposedly the shiny side works better when you, like you wanna have the shiny side on the inside when you're wrapping something. Because it's okay. supposedly, it's say like you're wrapping pizza, you, say, you bought, say you bought a pie and you can't eat it all and you're mm -hmm. wrapping a couple slices, mm -hmm. it won't stick as much to it. So that, that's what I read. Okay. So, but, but again, that could be a myth too. Yeah. Well, something that's not a myth that I think is very helpful is if you're baking pasta or you're baking something with cheese that you know is going to stick to the foil that you have on top, you should put down some parchment paper, right? That's what I do. They do sell nonstick aluminum foil too, which I suppose you could buy, but mm -hmm. then it's another thing you have to have. I feel that you really should have foil in your kitchen, and I don't recommend the little things of foil because they're not they're not a good value. Go to Costco, you can get the restaurant size one. It's about 20 inches long, the box, and it's like 3,000 feet of foil, and that will last any normal home cook. It will last you probably longer than a year. And while you're there, you can also pick up their parchment paper. They go hand in hand. They're great things to have in the kitchen, but the better parchment paper for me, for, for our situation, are the sheets that, that fit a standard half, uh, half size baking sheet. And those I have to buy from Amazon but you could probably get them in a restaurant supply store too. But Costco just sells the rolls of the parchment paper, which isn't the most convenient because you always have to then roll it out and you're trying to like rip it. And you always need like the parchment paper in like the heat of the moment mm -hmm. when you're cooking. Yeah. I've had a bunch of people say that they really appreciate the the use of parchment paper, that the way I use it. It says like they changed their cooking game a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently a lot of people don't use it uh, as much as the Sip and Feast channel does. I love parchment paper, it's wonderful. Yeah, let's move on to number seven, right? Okay. Yep. I'm loving this one, this is a great one. <laughs> so we're not gonna be able to finish all these here. Because what do you got, 20 on the list? I have a lot and we definitely wanna get to some of the listener questions Yeah, too. we'll get to the listener questions. We're gonna finish the rest of these on the Patreon. The Patreon is the podcast. It's a continuation of these episodes or they're their own standalone ones. We do two a month, so Essentially, as this podcast gets built, there's going to be dozens, if not a hundred episodes on the Patreon too. Eventually, the Patreon will also be where, when we get the cookbook going, that's going to be probably where it's tested to our really trusted uh, people. And uh, yeah, that's my plug for the Patreon. Jim, the next myth is that you must wash your chicken before you cook with it. I don't know if you want to call it a myth, but this is something that I used to do because it's what I was taught. It was what I saw going on in, you know, in a commercial food establishment too. But apparently, the FDA now has said that you, they don't recommend doing it. Now, I don't know if that extends to home cooks and restaurants or not. These restaurants themselves are much cleaner 
and they worry more about foodborne illness because mm-hmm. if you know if there's if there's something in the restaurant, it's gonna it's gonna get all the patrons sick for that night if it's like something that's that's served to most tables. So it's it's a real serious thing. Yeah. But as far as the FDA, let's just say it is for home cooks. They're saying that you know you run that chicken under the water, the water splashes onto your drain board that you have right next to it, and then all those cups and dishes that you think are clean are actually all contaminated with the salmonella too. That's right. And I don't I didn't see anything about the FDA. I just did see a whole slew of different articles that came up when I searched about it. In fact, Martha Stewart had an article on it as well. And really the only way to destroy those pathogens is by properly cooking the chicken. Washing it isn't going to do anything. It's just going to spread that bacteria to many other surfaces. I think a lot of people like to wash it because of that that gunk, solution. you know, the solution that the chicken's always well, in. That's different. I mean, I feel like if your chicken is in a solution and you want to rinse it, maybe you should then dry it off before you cook with it. If you're cooking like for a sear or anything, the only way really time you wouldn't dry your chicken off would be if you're just going to like drop it into a pot when you're making like soup, let's mm-hmm. say, okay, it's a whole chicken. When you're using chicken in most other capacities, whether you're doing like a scallopini, you know, or you have um, whole pieces and you're gonna wanna sear on all those pieces. And the mm-hmm. only way to get a proper sear is to really dry it off. So regardless, people are gonna be in that position where they are drying it off. You know, I mean, I've spoken about this, I think in some of the older videos and, you know, even those old videos when we started, they you know, they get a lot of views now and they, people come in and they're, they're like, I, as I said about the chicken, they're like, I will always wash my chicken. I will never listen to anybody who tells me. So it is a strong opinion thing. And, you know, people who are older cooks, they've been doing it for maybe 40 years. Do you think those older cooks or whomever is washing their chicken, do you think they're also washing their beef and their pork? They're definitely not doing that. I can't imagine anybody washing their beef and pork. Yeah. I mean, the way pork comes in from from a supermarket, it's not the only time it's in the solution is when you buy like a pork loin or a pork tenderloin. Right. But and that's, that's a, a lot sodium of times solution. Yeah, and that's when it's being marinated almost. Yeah, and those all I I don't really I'm not a big fan of those. You know, little tangent here: those pork loins and stuff are just ugh, they're kind of. Um, you know, you know what I'm talking about the ones that are like marinated from Costco. Mm-hmm. They're like too marinated. Yeah. You know, normally like a home cook's problem is like the marinade. You're like, oh, like I got, you know, say you're doing like souvlaki or something. And you're like, oh man, I wish, wish I did it for six more hours. Mm-hmm. Those, those ones that are like in Costco, they've been in that marinade for like three weeks or more. And they are potent, mm-hmm. sometimes too potent. Yeah, it's so a bit much. I'm not a fan of them in general because I always like to cook everything pretty much from scratch. I feel like that is... Since you've known me, I've always wanted to do things within reason from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's like the cooking process. Like you want to do it all for the most part. Yeah. Like I'm not making, I'm not making a wheel of Parmesan cheese. No, you're not like raising hogs and butchering them. Yeah. I'm not roasting my, my beans. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm hoping that the coffee roaster we buy them from (laughs) did a good job with them. That's right. All right. So what number are we up to now? Um, number eight. I actually kind of lost count. Okay. As far as the numbers go. All right, lost count here, but don't worry. <laughs> Rest assured, we're going to keep going. So the next one, which is actually one of my favorite ones, and it's my favorite because it conjures up a memory for me of one of my favorite TV shows, 
and it's the myth that turkey makes you tired. Oh. And what TV show am I thinking of when I think about turkey making you tired? I don't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take a guess. I think it's wrong. Is it Garfield? No. Who are you? Is it Seinfeld? Seinfeld. Which okay. Episode? Okay. <laughs> like we need to reevaluate our whole marriage. I've, I've right seen now. every episode like ten times. Okay. So remember when Jerry was dating the girl who had like the awesome toy collection? Didn't she have the mudden? Wasn't that the mudden though? No. Okay. She had this like really like awesome toy collection with like toys. Yes, from, I remember that. I don't know. I guess it was like the seventies, maybe. And she wouldn't let. I guess she was like a collector. She wouldn't let Jerry play with the toys. So Jerry and Elaine go there with a turkey and a giant box of wine with the intent to drug this girl on wine and tryptophan, right? She's going to eat the turkey. The tryptophan's going to make her fall asleep. The wine's going to make her fall asleep. And they're going to play with her toys. I mean, did the show, did that episode age well? Probably not. Why? Well, why didn't? Well, well, oh, well, you mean? Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's a different discussion. Yeah, yeah. that's a different. The the end result was that they just wanted to play with their toys. Um, anyway, so the myth is that trip the tryptophan in turkey makes you tired and fall asleep, and that's why every Thanksgiving you pass out after you eat. Yeah, dinner. but that's not a myth though. L tryptophan is a, it's sold in in capsule form to put you to sleep. So it. It, it, is, it is a bit of a myth, though, because there's no more tryptophan in turkey than there is in poultry oh, or okay. other sorts of okay. products that you eat every day. And you also, when you eat a turkey sandwich for lunch from the deli, it doesn't make you tired. The fact is, is that you get tired on Thanksgiving because you've probably overeaten, you've had alcohol, and you've had a lot more carbohydrates. I just got schooled because I always thought that there was in too, more tryptophan in turkey than in other, than in chicken, no, say. it's the same. Okay, all right, well, there you go. I just taught you something. You did. The next one is that you have to rinse your pasta before you put your sauce on it. Yeah, that one is, that's, that's a no-no. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> that's for Italian food. So it, this is actually making me think now. So I, I, and this was in the most recent, uh, the, the the post we put out today was the chicken cacciatore pasta. And I, right. I wrote a little, Tara does all the writing for, for the website and I write the recipes. After she writes it, the post, right before we publish it, I act as an editor. So I go through it, I make sure everything, like continuity is there, everything's okay. The continuity meaning in the recipe the, the instructions themselves that everything flows logically. As far as the writing, there was a little part about uh, Tara just saying like, for all you purists, you know, this one has chicken with pasta, you know, we're breaking the law essentially. And I just wrote, first of all, there's a lot of great Asian food that has chicken and pasta together. And, you know, they're the ones who created pasta. I know it might be a shock to some of you, but you know, that's, I don't know how much of a shock yeah, they created it. So they know a thing or two about cooking pasta and about making noodles and even advanced techniques that they do, that they use. Uh, some apparently Italian pasta makers are starting to adopt those techniques too. Where am I going with this? Essentially, they often will use cold noodles. So they'll, you know, if you're doing a well main, you're making your noodles, they're cooked, then they're, then they're turned cold, they're rinsed, and then they're used in the you know screaming hot wok. And there's a whole other assortment of dishes that I, I love Asian noodle dishes. 
So what I'm trying to say is simply the orthodoxy for Italian food is you never rinse your pasta. And I never do. I never do. I want it hot anyway. It's more important to keep it hot because we're just going right into the sauce we made. And remember, you always prepare your sauce for pasta, okay? You don't prepare the pasta. Like basically the sauce needs to be there waiting for the pasta. Mm -hmm. It's on a simmer. You know, you're getting a little too much reduction. You turn it off. You get your pasta going. You're never the other way around, all right? And then you get that hot pasta in that delicious sauce you just made and whatever sauce, I'm sure you did a great job with it. So why would you rinse the noodles at that point? Do you agree? I totally agree. I don't understand why you would rinse it. I knew somebody a long time ago who would rinse it and it never made sense to me. But then how was it hot? How was their dish hot then? They they thought they needed to get rid of the the starch. Yeah. I, 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 I don't understand it. But apparently... That is a food myth that a lot of people believe that they must do. Now, I, the only time that we rinse pasta in any of our recipes is for a pasta salad. And that's because you want to stop the cooking process. Yeah, pasta salad. And that's another thing that, uh, you know, Italian Italians, people in Italy, I mean, that is that that I think gets them even crazier than chicken with pasta. So because then you're. What are you doing? You know, like this is in, this is a travesty. You can't do this. So, but Tara's right. For a pasta salad, you have to. You want that pasta completely cold. I mean, that is that's paramount because if you don't do that and it's warm still, it's going to be complete mush when you eat it the next day for your barbecue. Now, I will say there are a couple caveats here. Say you're making pasta vizzoli, okay? Pa- pasta vizzoli. If you're making that and you want leftovers for the week you might want to not put all your pasta in because it will become much mushier the next day, Mm -hmm. subsequent days. So you can keep it on the side. This could be for a lot of soups you do. Like my mother, my grandmother would always make like a beef, like a beef soup, not a beef stew, a beef soup with like a beautiful uh, like beef bones and the broth. And it had like plum tomatoes and pieces of celery. And she would use the little, uh, Farfalet or farfellini, I'm trying to think. It's a little- The little bow ties. The little bow ties. And for that, she would keep them on the side too. So for that one too, you'd want to rinse them because Mm -hmm. then it's cold and you're putting it in the hot soup broth anyway, and it's totally fine. Same thing you could do with orzo. You could do this with a lot of those pastas. So there is caveats here, but definitely for like, if you're just making any type of pasta dish that has a hot sauce there and, you know- no, definitely, definitely don't starch. rinse it. You yeah. need it. To, the starch helps the sauce to cling. To bind, yeah. Right? And that's, you know, so that's another myth too we could probably talk about is oil in the water. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. that's, well, let's let's just go over that one too. So again, this is one that is Gordon Ramsay puts oil in his water. So okay, I mean, you know, there, there's, this isn't the bash on Gordon Ramsay uh podcast, but there are things that he does that really do break these norms. And that's another one. I think if he did that in Italy, you know, and he was in front of master chefs in Italy, like Michelin chefs, they would probably all tell him that you're doing it wrong. And then he'd probably have a fight, you know, to the death with them or something. That'd be good. That's one. Uh, I've seen some other ones that where he breaks it. Now, again, you know, I'm sure Gordon Ramsay makes some pretty good pasta. 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 So Mm -hmm. I follow the, and I haven't tested this scientifically or anything like that. And 
God, talk about a boring thing if I had to do that. You know, imagine that if I said like, oh, Tara, I'm on like boil number 30 of pasta, testing testing oil at 1.25%. Be like, I had a little stickage at 2%. I'm down to 1.25%. Get a life, Jim. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't even say it. The reason they say you don't put the oil in the water is because then your sauce will not stick to your pasta, which re- is a very important thing. I read that the oil just sits at the top. It, so it doesn't do and it anything. it doesn't do anything at all. It's yeah, point, that makes it's sense pointless. too. You're just wasting olive oil. There is a time where you do need the oil. It's when you're doing like lasagna noodles or uh, stuffed shells. Stuffed shells, I put it in the water because those are, you do not want them to stick. Mm-hmm. Like, And right when you get your shells out, you need to spread them out rapidly. Would you rinse those? I don't think I did the last time I made them. I, honestly, the last time I made stuffed shells was when I made a video for it. Mm-hmm. I do want to do another stuffed shells this fall with uh, like a butternut squash uh, sauce. Maybe that we'll do it with good. a pumpkin sauce. Pumpkin. We have too much butternut mm-hmm. squash uh, recipes on the site and we have no pumpkin recipes. Mm-hmm. We got to change that. We do. Yeah. We do. All right, let's go to the questions. Okay. This question comes from James... It's not James, your son. It's James, one of our listeners. And James says, are there any dishes you make now that you know could be improved upon from a culinary perspective, but you stick to an old recipe because of nostalgia and because it reminds you of your parents or grandparents cooking? That is a great question, James. I don't stick to any recipe period. And that's a good and a bad thing. So we're going to put the cookbook out probably in six months to a year. And we're going to be talking about it more as it becomes more and more of a reality. But there'll be a sauce recipe in there. And let's just talk Sunday sauce, because that's like basically Sunday sauce or Sunday gravy is the it's it's the uppermost thing of Italian American cooking. It is you are not there are no Italian people who migrated to the Northeast of America that don't have sauce as basically the pinnacle of their table. It just, it would, and I, you know, you're saying, I'm Jim, you can't make a statement like that. Can I not make a statement like that? Could you imagine if like a family living multiple generations and not liking Sunday sauce? I'm sure there's a family or two out there, but yeah. Okay. Well, maybe there is. But the point is, is that in the book, that's going to be a really important recipe. But the thing is, and Tara knows this, I change that recipe all the time based mm-hmm. on my mood, right? That's right. What, what, what are certain changes I'll make? Well, you'll change sometimes the type of meat that you put in it. Maybe you'll use a red wine in the sauce. Sometimes you won't use wine. Sometimes you use a white wine. Yeah. You'll use sometimes different herbs. Sometimes start it with pancetta instead of olive oil, stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe a carrot, little piece of carrot in there to give a little bit more sweetness. Mm -hmm. There's an infinite amount of things you can do. Now, there's just the recipe in the book, in a print book. It is what it is. That's that's what it's going to be. But yeah, as far as like saying like I used my grandmother's recipes, my mom's recipes as they're an influence on me, but I'm always trying to make everything that they did and that I do better. That's just, that's that's what I try to do. Yeah, like, so for example, your pasta fazool that you make, you add rosemary to it, but 
did your mom not add rosemary? Yeah. Is that what it is? So yeah, the pasta bazool is a great example. I, and honestly, a lot of people that watch our videos would probably might like my mom's recipe better. And I actually am considering putting, mom, if you're listening, I'm considering putting your recipe in the cookbook instead of mine. The one that, that I have, the video, the one that's on the site is almost like a Bianco. Like it's very close. Like there's only like two tomatoes that I like are squeezed in my hand. They just give a touch of redness to it to make it not a completely white pasta azul. But my mother's will have more tomatoes, probably about the equivalent of like maybe maybe half a can of tomatoes, which you know standard can is 28 ounces. So she has like 14 ounces, which would be probably about 12 plum or 10 plum tomatoes in the can versus my two or three that I use, which hers is redder. She puts a lot more garlic in, which is very, very, very accurate to the food that people make in the New York, New Jersey area. They all Italian restaurants that have that Italian American bent. They all to, to people in Italy use way too much garlic. They say, they say this food is too much garlic. That's just what they do here. So my mom's has a lot of garlic. She doesn't put any herbs in it. It's a very simple dish. She often will use small shells instead of ditalini, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which I like the small shells, but mine is more on the white side. Mine would be more reminiscent, I believe, of how it's done in Northern Italy, I think. Like maybe like Tus Tuscan, you know? Like I always think, whenever I think of Tuscan, I always think of like the rosemary mm -hmm. and but that being said, I don't put a carrot or anything like that. I don't do a sofrito in it. I think I do a sofrito in the pasta chechi. But again, all these recipes, I'm constantly changing. Like, and that's what I'm always trying to communicate to you, James, and to everybody else who watches us. You are only going to become a good cook when you finally get rid of all my recipes. You are going to become a like a, a really good cook when you take the Sip and Feast cookbook that's not even out yet and you throw it in the bonfire. I'm not kidding. Like you will know then <laughs> how to cook. You will know how to do everything. In my opinion, this is why I don't like the Instapot and I don't like the gadgets like that. And, and I really don't like the Instapot. I know we talked about it in a previous episode. It was the kitchen gad tool mm -hmm. episode. I really don't like it. It makes you not a cook. Uh, it, it makes you, you're never gonna be a good cook if you use that. If you're using that thing multiple days a week, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I know I'm making a strong statement here, but you want to be able to make things on your own. You want to have a situation where your son or daughter, James, can come to you and with go open the fridge, they take you to the fridge and they point to this, 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 and this, and they go make me something, dad. And you go, I know how to do this. I have a general idea what I'm going to do here. And I don't need a recipe. I'm not going to I'm not going to Sip and Feast's site and I'm not going to any other site. I'm gonna do this all myself. Do you, do you agree with what I'm saying, Tara, or am I making too strong of a, am I too opinionated here? Well, you certainly have a strong opinion about this topic, which I find ironic considering, you know, we want people to visit our website, right? To use our recipes, but you're not incorrect in that, you know, a recipe, I think it's fine to look at a recipe for inspiration and then make tweaks as you need. So if a recipe says that you have to use oil cured olives and you don't have oil cured olives and can't find them, you can go ahead and use green olives. It's going to be okay. It really will. So you have to have enough confidence to veer from the recipe creator's recipe. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I want to do a whole podcast on this about this topic, 
I want, this is what I want a whole episode to be about because I'm not gonna be able to describe it here enough. You gotta get to the point where when you look at my recipes or anybody else's recipes, you're like, that's wrong. I don't care if this is a three-star Michelin chef. I, I'll give you an example. And and I and I watch Lydia for years and I and Lydia is a great cook and you know she's an inspiration to a lot of people that are here. Like she, you know, had a restaurant going back over 40 years, 50 years. My my parents, when my mom lived in Astoria in Queens, when she first met my father, they went to her restaurant, which was, uh, I think it was called Felidia. And I think it was in, I think it was in Astoria or, but you know, she's built an empire and people know, you know, she makes great stuff and all that. And anyway, in one of her books, one of her, one of her like 20 books, uh, there was a pesto recipe. Do you remember this story, mm -hmm. Tara? Okay. Yeah. So it was for, it was for just pesto, standard, you know, pe you know, Genovese pesto, which is just the regular basil, basil pesto that most people think about. It had like two tablespoons or three tablespoons of olive oil. Now, anybody who makes pesto knows, first of all, if you're gonna do a pound of pasta, you're gonna need about three cups of basil leaves packed, and you're gonna need at least a half a cup of olive oil, but probably more towards three quarter cup of olive oil. It will not blend in your blender or food processor, or if you're doing it in a mortar and pestle, you're just not gonna have enough there. You need more of it. You know, I saw it, until Tower, you know, we looked at it, we said, well, let's just do it first. And you know, this is 20 years ago or more. And uh, it didn't work out. So I just added more oil. Like I doubled the amount and it didn't work. And then I added more and then it worked. And then that's a lifelong lesson for me. And it'll be a lifelong lesson for you when you start saying that recipe I'm looking at right now is way off. You know, there's some popular food bloggers that put in like two tablespoons of Italian seasoning and two tablespoons of dried basil in their food. And, and it's just horrible. And this is, these are popular food bloggers and nobody's calling them out on this because a lot of the people that are making the recipes from these individuals, they don't know how to cook either. Once they learn how to cook, they no longer use that person's recipes anymore and they move on to my recipes. <laughs> That's what happens. All right. Let's go on to the next uh, question. Okay. The next question comes from Jane. Jane says, Jim, do you have a vegetarian following and would you do an episode on Italian vegetarian cooking? Do I have a following? Is that the like, question? Like, do you have a lot of people that follow you who are vegetarians? So thanks for the question, Jane. I believe we do because I, I see it in the YouTube comments a mm -hmm. lot. Now, I think that is more indicative of where society as a whole and the YouTube collective itself, the collective YouTube audience is. I don't know if it's necessarily representative of say the 340 million people that make up America, but on YouTube itself, we do get a lot of questions about that. So, you know, a lot of our recipes are maybe vegetarian by accident. That's like, right. Like they're not they intent. Are. Yeah, they're not like intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you put pancetta in it. Oh, well, just just remove but the pancetta just from pasta bazool. Yeah, and a lot of our recipes can be easily tweaked to be made vegetarian. Right after we finish filming this, and uh, you know, we're gonna we'll clean up quickly. I'm going to be making baba ganoush, which is not an Italian recipe. It's a Lebanese or uh, Mediterranean recipe, and but you know. I'm like really banging out the eggplant recipes on the site. And that is 100% vegetarian. And then I'm going to be making ratatouille, 
which is a French recipe. It's a French vegetable like medley stew. Not really stew. It's not not too liquidy. It's like um, a French chimbata. That's right. Or jimbats or however you pronounce it. I just wrote up the recipe cards for this and I write the cards before I make the recipes. And then I go downstairs, I make the food. If there's any problems, I update the recipe cards. I tweak it before I finally give it to you, Jane, to, you know, to, to consume. But the only change there was I had vegetable stock and I don't even know if I'm going to need any stock in it, but I suppose someone who wanted potentially a little bit more flavor could put chicken stock in. See, I don't like even saying like more flavor in the videos because I do, I don't want to like annoy vegetarians by saying that, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not upset that people are be are becoming that way. I'm, I'm just not, that's not me. Like I'm going to continue to consume the food I do and I'm going to continue to put out recipes that are both meat-based and vegetarian-based. Um, but I am woefully ignorant when it comes to vegetarian and definitely vegan culture. I, I don't know a lot about it. I don't know the products that would work, uh, the substitutes and stuff like that. I, I know they make some cheeses and stuff, even in Italy now, that lack the um, the rennet, rennet right? Yeah. yeah. So so they are like they are. You are able you are able to eat them if you're vegetarian. Mm -hmm. But I'm not knowledgeable on this subject. Thanks for for the question, Jane. I feel like. Uh Who's the guy on SNL? And he would. Oh, uh, Kevin Kevin Nealon. Yeah, but yeah. before him, it was the other guy. Who Dennis Miller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he would always be like, <laughs> "Okay, so Jim, this question comes from Jeremy. What are Jim's thoughts on the old saying that most people who enjoy cooking don't enjoy baking, and vice versa? I can say for myself, I love to cook, but avoid baking like the plague. In fairness, I don't enjoy sweets, so cookies, cakes, pies, etc., don't interest me." that much. But the other part is that I feel like cooking, you can add your own flair and baking is much more formulaic. So Jim, is the myth that you don't enjoy, if you enjoy baking, you don't enjoy cooking and vice versa. Is that myth true? And how does it apply to you? Okay, Jeremy, great question. It does not apply to me. It's actually the opposite. I and Tara knows this. That's why I think she selected this question. I absolutely love baking. I love it. Uh, I think part of the reason is that I like a challenge. Not that I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be consistently challenged with cooking, but I'm less challenged with cooking. I've, I've been cooking a long time and it's just, it's something that I'm a lot more in my comfort zone versus baking. I'm out of my comfort zone a little bit and I love it. I love it. Like I, if I had to choose, like if I was going to work at a food establishment, where would it be, Tara? Pizza. It would be a pizzeria or it would be a bakery, right? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be a restaurant. Probably not. And I'm not that big of a fan though, Jeremy, of desserts. That I'm not, like the sweets like that. I do like the cookies and stuff, but what I really am a huge fan and I got the belly to show it, is the breads, the breads and the different techniques, your starters, like if you make a sponge or a poolish and you know, um, you know, like like the different types of sourdoughs you can have. And you know, some people have sourdoughs dating back 250 years and I just love it. We did uh, recently, I perfected uh, an olive bread and how good is that bread? So good. 
So that's done with stretching right now. I want it too. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want the summer to go. Like I want the summer to stay, but there's certain things that you're not gonna do during the summer. Like that olive bread, you, you know, you're heating up your oven and it's the same thing with pizza now. It's just like, you know, when you, especially if you're doing it with the steel technique, it's too much. You know, you have, you have to heat up your house high and then your AC has to work overtime to keep, to push it down. That's if you have AC. If you don't have AC, it would be, it would be insanity to do something like that. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward, I guess, to those uh, bread recipes. But what was like, I'm trying to think, what, what other part was, was it about? Should I, should I tell him? Well, oh, oh, he's what is he about the art and science of it? Well, no, he's saying, what are your thoughts on like, there's an old saying that most people who enjoy cooking don't enjoy baking and vice versa. So do you, do you find that that is true. Yeah. yeah. So again, and and that's the thing. Like, I think it's it's a misnomer that people say you can't be creative with the baking process. A lot of these bakers, well, I think we spoke about it in a previous episode about the grams measurement and stuff like that. These old school bakers, they're not using grams. They're not using anything. They're just like they're like throwing in one bag of flour and then they're like a bag of water and some of this and some of that and then they're grabbing it and then they can know the texture. Well, they're going based on feel. Feel, but they're not being as creative as one would be with making a, a, a savory recipe where you can be more creative. They're still going by some sort of a science. But it's the same thing with cooking. Regular cooking, you're like, for most dishes, you're gonna start with your fat in the pan first. You're gonna mm -hmm. render it out, whether it's, you know, you started with pork fat, pancetta, whatever, heat it up. Then you're gonna do your onions. And then you're going to do, you know, your other vegetables. There's, there's an order to things. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's just how it is. Or if you, you know, if you do a chicken, you do a sear first. But it is, it is formulaic the cooking, just like baking can be too. I think it's easier to be a little bit more creative with with savory cooking than than using a recipe, especially when you're talking about baking powder, baking soda, the amount of sugar, because sugar is an important part of a recipe. It does have no, it, it, a scientific you're reason right. for it. You're right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, I, I'm not at that level with baking where I could just, if somebody could put me in any kitchen when it comes to regular food, you know, like dinner food, I, I would be fine. It doesn't matter what it is, I would, I would be fine. Um, baking, no, somebody just dropped me there and they started saying like, make this, make that. And I didn't have like the recipes in front of me. I would, that would be challenging. Mm -hmm. That would be very challenging. Yeah. That would be a good idea for a show. They take cooks and make them bake. They take bakers and make them cook. Ooh. Blindfolded <laughs> on a mountain with Gordon Ramsay <laughs> on like a hovering helicopter looking down, <laughs> throwing water balloons at him. I think you should pitch that idea to the Food Network. Maybe Guy Fieri can be the host. They're like, Jim, that idea is already, that's already in production. That's like that, uh, it's a South Park episode. They have- um, You just read my mind. Yeah, the South Park episode, They it's uh, the Osimo episode, which is probably the best South Park episode ever made. And just watch it. But anyway, they're like, Car Cartman's a little cardboard robot trying to fool butters. And uh, they, like these Hollywood executives Thought, found him and thought he was like a real robot and they're they're just making him spit out new movie ideas and every movie idea is like how about adam sandler like climbs yeah. up a mountain yeah. or like, <laughs> how about adam sandler? adam sandler falls in love with a girl but she's really a dog and the executives are like yes we'll call it puppy that's a, love that's amazing <laughs>
<laughs> it's so funny because the second you started saying that, I was like, this sounds like an awesome show. I, I mean, honestly, I don't think I'm too far off. I, I mean, there it's not an understatement like to think that they probably are coming up with crazy new ideas like this. Hey, <laughs> you're the problem. I'm the problem. We got to stop watching that stuff, right? <laughs> Questions, podcast at sipandfeast.com. Email us to podcast at sipandfeast.com. We'll see you next time.